hope you're having a good morning this morning. That'll just top it off really right there, won't it? It's always precious to see kids sing about the Lord. We'll be finding in your Bibles Psalm chapter 127. I've entitled this message, God Bless America, My Home Sweet Home. Now, I don't always preach messages that pertain to a holiday, but I think God's hand upon this country has been very significant. And I want to bring that message, God Bless America, My Home Sweet Home. Songs have forever been written to express how we feel about certain things. Life situations, songs about our faith, of course, songs about family. I mean, songs just write about relationships. And and so we're used to that. We turn on the radio, we listen to songs just about life and the things of life. That's been happening forever. And that's what we have here with Psalm chapter 127. This is a song written by Solomon. It's one of... 15 songs in a collection of Hebrew songs, and that collection altogether is called the Song of Decrees. It may say that as a little inserted heading in your Bible, or it may say a Song of Ascents. And you might be saying, what's what's a Song of Ascents? It's a collection of 15 songs here that people would sing as they made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for one of the festivals. There were three main festivals throughout each year. And so they would sing different songs of ascents as they made their way as, as a form of worship. Many scholars believe that it was Hezekiah who took Solomon's song and added it to the Hebrew hymn book. Hezekiah, we read from Scripture, was in a dire situation where Sennacherib and his army were threatening to overtake the promised land threatening to ramsack Jerusalem and overtake the land, and they were going to put an end to the princely line of Israel. And so he was in a terrible situation, and if Hezekiah were seeking a word from the Lord, he would have certainly found it here in this song of decrees. I want you to follow along with me in Psalm 127, just the first two verses. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house... They labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he gives his beloved sleep, or he gives his beloved rest. This is a song about building a house. Specifically, Solomon's father, King David, had it upon his heart to build a house for the Lord, to build a temple of worship. But what did God say? God said, no, David, I'm giving you the plans for the house, the architectural design, but you're not to build it. Solomon, your son, is to be the builder. And so David has to shift over the plans to Solomon, his son, and everything's okay with that. He's good with that. But it's Solomon who was going to build that. And you can read about that in 1 Chronicles 28. So David takes these blueprints, he passes it over. These are divine specifications that have been given for the building of God's place, God's house of worship, the temple. Just as God gave Moses divine specifications that we read about in the book of Exodus for the building of the tabernacle, which was transit. They moved it from place to place during their wilderness wanderings. They were to build that according to specific specifications that came from God when he spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, when he spent 40 days there with him on the mountain. 
And so we would say these two are divine specifications. They come from God for the building of his place of worship. Solomon drafted, we know, 30,000 Hebrews sending three or 10,000 at a time to Lebanon just to cut the wood that would be used for the building of this temple. Massive stones were quarried. They were shaped. They were transported to Jerusalem for the foundation. The Bible talks about the fragrant cedars of Lebanon and about the gold and the silver and the precious stones that were used in the building of this temple. About royal fabrics being designed and fabricated for use in this temple. All that wealth and zeal and strength could command within the framework of God's blueprint for this temple went into the building of it. And what's amazing is just how much of Solomon's words actually apply to us here today because each of us is building a house right now. Did you know that? Look, look to the person next to you and say, I didn't know we were building a house. You are building a house. You are building something of your life right now. You say, my building days are over. I'm older now. No, you're still building. We are all still in the construction phase of building our lives. And see, the word house used in Scripture, like I mentioned before, is used in three ways. First of all, a house can refer to Scripture as the person and his life, his family. Scripture says, as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. Talking about me and my bunch, me and my home, my family. It can refer to one's person. It can refer also to one's property, all that he has. We hear the, the talking about the scripture talking about Abraham and all his house, talking about his family and all his substance. Scripture talks about a house being a people, a nation, a city. The house of Israel was the nation of Israel. And so we know that a house can refer to us as well. We are also a house. It speaks of our person, our property, our place, and our home, our family. It also can speak of our nation. America is a house. Solomon built his house, the house of the Lord, the new temple. And it was the supreme work of his life. We read through scripture what a magnificent, beautiful temple it was. It was his supreme work in his life. Yet he makes this emphatic statement. And we don't need to miss this. He said, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. We can put all the ingenuity we want into building a house, but we're laboring in vain unless the Lord is in it, unless the Lord is over the house. So as a nation, this country's been so blessed, and I believe there's a great reason why. First of all, if you're a note taker, here you go. A house built according to divine specifications will be a blessed house. When we build our, our lives, our families, everything about us, around God and His divine principles, His specifications, we will be blessed. The Bible tells us that clearly. And in verses 1 and 2, Solomon mentions these three things that will prove to be true if we fail to do that. First of all, we'll be working in vain. We'll be watching over it in vain. And we'll be worrying in vain. There'll be nothing we can do. I was thinking in writing this message about Hurricane Katrina. It's hard to believe that was back in 05, isn't it? 
Hurricane Katrina struck and the people of New Orleans watch closely now, any time that a, a tropical storm begins to build up in the Gulf, wow, they're watching. And all those along the Gulf Coast, they're watching and they're looking. And you say the word hurricane, they want to know what's the path, what's the predicted path of this storm. But no amount of worrying can change one fact, and that is the city of New Orleans is built below sea level. Nothing's going to change that. The foundations are below sea level, and any time a storm comes like that, they're going to be in trouble. They must move to higher ground. And as a nation, you and I can work hard to increase our national security. We can put that upon our legislators. We can put that burden upon our congressmen. And that is, by the way, the duty of a country, the duty of a president, the duty of a king over his country is to protect his country. Those who say, well, we don't need national security, war is just evil and all that, you're not being scriptural. It's scriptural to protect your nation. It's scriptural to protect your nation from evildoers, both on the inside and on the outside. And we can demand that, and certainly we should. And as a nation, we, we put much into our national security. We can cl- keep close watch on all of our enemies. But all of this will be in vain until we move or unless we move to higher ground. We've got to build our lives and our families and our nation according to God's divine specifications. Verse 2 tells us what we'll receive if we'll do that. Very simply, we'll find sleep. Have you ever struggled to sleep at night? I have. Something's on your mind. Sometimes we struggle, we don't even know why we're struggling. But our mind is filled with so many things we can't even pinpoint what it is that's keeping our, our thoughts captive and preventing us from finding rest. You know, as a nation, we can be worried about our country. We can be worried about... The, the, the safety and security of our country. Oh, we listen on the news all the time about North Korea. Now they're trying to develop this, this missile. They, they have it in the works, one that will come all the way to North America. and They want to put an end to the United States. I think they just don't like anybody, to be honest with you. And they're starving their people to death so that they can have better national security. Not a way of life that we would ever... Uh, want here or stand for here in this country, but they that is at the foremost of their thought and their plans. And we can lay up at night worried about them. We can worry about Russia like everyone did when I was a child. That's all you heard was the communists are coming. I can remember playing in the yard with friends and we'd hang upside down a tree and someone would say, uh, some, we'd yell, bloody murder. We got that word, you know, bloody murder. The communists are coming, we'd yell, you know. That's just stuff we got off the TV. Today we worry about so many things, but our worrying even is in vain. It won't get us to higher ground. We've got to get to higher ground, and when we do, God gives us rest. When we get to His principles, He gives us rest. And I said before at the beginning of this church service, America continues to be a blessed nation. There's been times where I've preached, and I, I really, I got very, very weary of trying to find some great things to say in a sermon as the years were going by without getting negative. There are so many things I see that's got to change in America. And I found myself coming to a time of celebration where we celebrate our independence and who we are as a great nation. And, and I would have trouble because I just I thought so much has to be fixed. I couldn't celebrate the blessings of God. 
And about a year or two ago, I just said, you know, I've got to change that about my preaching because we're overlooking the blessing and just seeing the negative. America is still a blessed nation, and that's what I'm here to declare to you today. But there has been a great move away from God. Over the last 20 years especially, a great move, a, almost a follow, falling away of our nation from the principles of God's Word and God's truth. And we know when we turn on the news each and every day, there are political groups, there are activist groups, interest groups that are working continuously to strip America of its faith in God. They're trying to strip every reference of the God of Israel from the public place. Every reference to God. They want to twist and turn and revise history. The history of our forefathers and the founding of this nation to eliminate any of them having faith in God, the God of the Bible, and references to God, references to worship of Almighty God, and especially His Son, Jesus Christ. They claim that our nation was not built in pursuit of freedom to worship, but that was certainly one of the greatest parts of it. Freedom from the tyranny of England, freedom to worship, freedom from the church there so that we might worship in freedom here and praise our God, our Creator, without retribution. But they want to claim that that did not happen, that it wasn't in pursuit of freedom that people came to this great land, rather that it was built independent of Almighty God. And that's simply false. History does not lie. Our nation's history, even our capital building itself, is filled with testimonies of the fact that many, if not most, of our forefathers and the creators of the Constitution unashamedly express their faith, they express their reverence and dependence on Almighty God for the establishment of this nation, and they look to God's Word for divine help. I love David Barton. David Barton was a... If I remember correctly, was a high school history teacher. And he began studying Constitution, began studying the history of America more deeply, and more specifically, Christianity in America and in the founding of America. David Barton leads tours uh, on, the, on our national capital, and he goes around speaking around the country, and you'll like some of the things that he knows that he can express to you that will combat the lies that we're being told. This is a copy of what the first Bible printed in English in America looked like. This Bible was printed by the U.S. Congress in 1782. In the records, it says that this Bible was, quote, a neat edition of the Holy Scriptures for the use of our schools, end quote. So the first Bible printed in America in English was printed by Congress for the use of our schools. It's worse than that. In the front of the cover, it says that Congress resolved the United States and Congress Assembly recommend this edition of the Bible to the inhabitants of the United States. So the first Bible printed in English in America was done by the guys who signed the documents, endorsed by Congress, and done for the use of schools. And we're going to be told that they don't want any kind of religion and education. They don't want voluntary prayer. No, it doesn't make sense. This document by itself is fairly significant. But in 1830, Congress commissioned these four paintings over here to recapture what the official record said was the Christian history of the United States. 
So in these four paintings you have really a span of several hundred years. If I take you through them chronologically, the first is back there at Columbus, landing in the Western world in 1492. Uh, they got out, they knelt down, they had a prayer service. You see the cross they have. They named the land where they had landed San Salvador, meaning Holy Savior, which tells you something of the thinking that was going on then. You come back over my shoulder here. This is the baptism of Pocahontas in Jamestown, and this was in 1613. Uh, over here, the fourth painting is 1620. This is the embarkation of the pilgrims coming to America. You see them gathered around the Bible there. You see the prayer meeting they're having. Now, if you just take those four paintings right there, those four paintings in this great secular hall of government, those four paintings represent two prayer meetings of Bible study and baptism, which is not bad for a secular building. Matter of fact, you're standing in what in 1857 was the largest church in the United States, the U.S. Capitol. Back on December the 4th of 1800, uh, members of Congress, members of the Senate, Thomas Jefferson was over the Senate. You had John Trumbull over the House. They decided that on Sundays we would turn, turn the Capitol building into a church building. And starting on Sunday, we started having services in the Capitol. Now, six weeks after that, Thomas Jefferson became president of the United States. But for his eight years as president, he went to church here at the U.S. Capitol, listened to the sermons here at the Capitol, and being commander-in-chief, he decided he could help the worship here at the Capitol. He ordered the Marine Corps band to come play the worship services at the Capitol. Now, that'd be kind of cool having the Marine Corps band as your worship band, you know, in church. That church went for the better part of a century, and by 1857, there were 2,000 people a week that went to church in the hall of the House of Representatives. In addition to that, there were four other churches that met at the Capitol. First Congregational, was this was their church home, as was First Presbyterian, as was Capitol Hill Presbyterian. Churches met here. There was nothing secular or seen to be secular about this building until the last 30, 40, 50 years. I'm revived. I feel different. I feel that I go home and know how to pray. Last night, we walked around the Capitol. I spent more time crying and weeping listening to Brother David as he spoke about our government and, and the documents that he held up. And I said, Lord, I said, well, how can I be used? The David Martin tour of the Capitol, that was awesome. It was, it was enlightening. It was awesome. There was so much that I didn't know. It opened up our eyes where... The media will only give you one side, but we got to see what America was built on. And even though we knew it, we got to see it in depth. And just the information that he gave us just it blew my mind. Though I've lived in the general area for over 20 years now, I've never been inside the Capitol before. I'm within two and a half hours of the Capitol. And, uh, and uh, David, the leader, was just phenomenal. One of the highlights for me was going to the Capitol building and getting some history about what's been going on as far as how this nation was started. And, and we've been lying to you. And that's the, the God is the God truth. And just not knowing that, and it's really I'm a little angry about it. And, uh, and I'm at the point of getting the education that I need. You see the statue to the left of the door over there, that white marble statue? That is President Jane A. Garfield. President Garfield uh, was one of the young major generals in the Civil War. Uh, he was a war hero. He became Speaker of the House. He became the 20th President of the United States. And by the way, uh, that man founded Howard University. Uh, General O. Howard took it over after he founded it. Just a really cool guy. But what we never hear about that President of the United States is that he was a minister during the Second Great Awakening. 
Uh, this is actually one of his letters, signed James A. Garfield, 1858. In this letter, President Garfield recounts that he had just finished preaching a revival service where that he preached the gospel 19 times in the revival. He said that as a result of his preaching, he said that 34 folks came to Christ and he baptized 31 of them. Now that doesn't seem like a typical presidential activity today. That's what we used to do with presidents in the past. Again, you'd walk through, you'd see a statue, you'd think, oh, there's a president. You'd never think there's a minister. We've so compartmentalized Christianity in such a small box that we don't realize our military leaders, our, our ministers, our educators, our, our, our presidents used to be ministers. That's why I say about one-fourth of these statues are ministers of the gospel. Uh, the church has been silent. It's been a real eye-opener to see, uh, you know, the forefathers of our faith in this country, how they engaged the culture. They had a positive impact on the culture. And really, we're all beneficiaries of that generations later. Now, if you come back to these guys right here, these 56 guys right here are the ones that create all the problem with religious expression public today. You see, every time we go into a public setting or a court case and What's happened is we've all been trained to recognize the two least religious founding fathers. We can all find Jefferson and Franklin, and everybody else was just like them. Really? I mean, most people have no clue that Jefferson started a church in the U.S. Capitol that went for a century. Most people have, have no clue that Thomas Jefferson in 1803 negotiated a treaty with the Kaskasi Indians in which Jefferson put federal funds to pay for missionaries to go evangelize the Indians and gave federal funds so that after they were converted, we'd build a church in which to worship. And that's our least religious founding father, okay, which tells you something about the others. Out of the 56 guys who signed the Declaration, you have 29 who held seminary or Bible school degrees. My first visit to the FRC uh, was that of going through the Capitol tour with David Barton. And that changed my life because in that tour, we learned and found out things about this nation and the founding of this nation that are holy and strictly Christian from the Bible. And you need to know that. You need to hear about that. So I encourage you, make FRC a destination. The Family Research Council has given us a voice that goes way beyond our pulpits. Very eye-opening to me when I first saw that video and many of the things that David Barton brings out in his history videos. I'm just saying the reason I believe America is so blessed is because it was founded with a strong belief and faith in the God of the Bible, the God whom we serve, the God who is Father of all and His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we can't change that history. The very laws that are in place across our nation come from Judeo-Christian laws. They come from the Scriptures. We were built with reliance and dependence on God, and God is the reason America has been so blessed. A house that's built according to divine specifications will be a blessed house. Never forget that. Secondly, peace is obtained through righteousness. Our peace is obtained through righteousness. I want you to read Psalm 37, 37 through 40 with me. I like Psalm 37, 37. I've been able to use that at a number of funerals of people who walked faithfully with the Lord. The Bible says, in Psalm 37, 37, Mark the blameless man and observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace. But it goes on. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. 
And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in Him. If you want peace in your home, walk blameless and upright with the Lord. If you want peace and rest in your home, look to God, look to His Word. Fashion your life according to divine specifications. If America wants peace for its future, it must return to righteousness, God's righteousness, not man-made righteousness. And I know that there was a time in our nation's history when if someone was going to run for public office, it was almost a given that they had to be a Christian. They had to be a God-fearing, moral Christian because God judges those who are immoral. And no one wanted a leader who was immoral. When the ungodly and immoral people are elected to public office, it tells us something. It says we are, we are ignoring God's divine specifications for building a house. James Madison, one of the primary authors of the United States Constitution, says this, We have staked the whole future of our new nation, not upon the power of government, far from it. We have staked the future of all our political constitutions upon the capacity of each of ourselves to govern ourselves according to the moral principles of the Ten Commandments. A couple of years ago, one of our nation's leaders had been caught sending nude photos of himself to women. And as the situation unfolded, it began to show what I would say is even the, uh, the, the greater moral decline of America The story got even better when a porn star blew the whistle on him, saying that she was offended by his actions, as if she could really serve as America's spokesperson on morality. So you have have a congressman sending nude photos of himself. You have a porn star who's offended, and she's the one that's going uh, to battle against him. And I thought, what have we come to? What a moral decline in our country. Where are the moral? Where are the righteous? And as that story began to develop and as it began to have hearings and things of that nature, rather than the main focus staying on the immoral acts that were committed by the congressman, those defending the man claimed this, what a man does in his private life cannot be held against him in his public life. What if someone does in private is their own business. It matters not about his public life. In other words, his character can only be judged by what he's like when he's on the job, not by the things he does when he's off the job. And I want to compare that, that that line of thinking, that way of thinking, to that of Samuel Adams, who wrote a letter to James Warren, November 4th, 1775. He said, He who is void of virtuous attachments in private life is, or very soon will be, void of all regard for his country. There's seldom an instance of a man guilty of betraying his country who had not before lost the feeling of moral obligations in his private connections. I think that's well said. You cannot separate your private life and your public life. You are who you are. Jesus said, you're before me or you're against me. God always said, you can't separate the two. You're either walking with me or you're not. He said, be holy for I am holy. He didn't say, be holy at home and be a hell raiser at work. He didn't say that. No, we're to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That ought to be the stand in the life of our leaders, our national leaders. Morality and righteousness matter to God. It matters for us as a nation. It matters for us as individuals and as entire families. And as a church and even as a community, righteousness and morality matter to God. He has given us a divine blueprint for obtaining His blessing and holding His blessing if we'll only follow that blueprint. Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, He spoke of a person who hears and lives by God's Word as being like someone who builds his house on a rock. He builds the house on the rock and the rock withstood the storms of life. But He went on to say the one who does not build his house on the rock but instead builds on sand, when the storms come, his house and all that he has, all that he's about, his family, his work, his life's work, all of it is destroyed. Everything that he built for himself, Jesus said it fell hard when the storms came. This quote by Benjamin Franklin referenced Psalm 127. He was challenged about opening each political session with prayer. Now, I don't look at a video like that and think every one of those men were just radical for Jesus. Okay? So don't think I'm aloof. Let me tell you, a great many of them were. They had a sense of faith and understanding that we exist because Almighty God created us. And they understood that our nation could only be built on something greater than we are. From a human perspective, we are nothing. It takes an almighty power, an omniscient, omnipotent, holy God. Only He could build us and sustain us as a nation. And Benjamin Franklin referenced Psalm 127, our passage this morning. He, challenged, he was challenged about opening up the sessions with prayer. And here's what he replied. I've lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings, that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain who build it. And that's a message I want us to walk away from here. And really, we've got to take the message from our nation and from our celebrating, our freedom. Keep those things in your mind. Keep thinking of those things. But here's where, really, here's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. We've got to look at our own lives. We've got to say, okay, what am I building my life according to? Am I building my own life according to someone else's principles? according to someone else's standard, or am I building my home, my life, according to God's divine specifications, according to God's word and God's truth? There's where the invitation is this morning. Whether it's about our homes, whether it's about America as a nation, we're to build our house according to God's blueprint. We're to live for Him, the Bible says. We're to build on a rock. And Jesus is that rock. And if we'll build on Him, our future will be one of peace. Oh, there's so many people in the world today. Their lives are in turmoil. And they're not at peace. And they're fine one-on-one when we're talking. They're fine in a group of people. They're happy. They're, they're, They're thrilled. Life is all good. But when they get alone, they're in turmoil on the inside. They're not at peace with God because they're not living for Jesus, His Son. 
Jesus is that rock. If they'll build on His life, they'll have peace. He came to give us peace. He came to reconcile us to God. And in Him is our peace.